Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, retired detective sergeant and best-selling author Bruce Coffin joins me in the interrogation room. Given the massive disparity in our interview experience, I'm going to try to avoid going on the defensive for as long as possible. Bruce spent uh, 27 years in law enforcement and retired from the municipal department in Portland, Maine, where he last supervised all homicide and violent crime investigations. For the four years following 9-11, Bruce served in a counterterrorism role with the FBI, and his efforts there earned him that agency's director's award, which is the highest possible commendation for a non-agent. Bruce is the author of three published novels, the most recent of which is called Beyond the Truth and is the latest in a series that revolves around protagonist Detective Sergeant John Byron, also of the Portland, Maine Police Force. Thanks, Bruce, for joining Writers on the Beat today. Oh, happy to be here. Thank you for having me, Gavin. No, it's absolutely my pleasure, my honor, sir. I'm, I'm reading Beyond the Truth right now, and it's, it's been a fantastic introduction to your writing. Um, I, I know making serious novels work well as standalones isn't easy, and I, I appreciate how well you've done that here. What do you want readers to know about John Byron and Beyond the Truth, uh, especially those not familiar with your work? You know, I think the the thing that I, I hope to get across the, the best is, I mean, all of these books, obviously, they're fiction. So I, first and foremost, they have to be entertaining. But really what my goal, I think, in writing the John Byron series uh, is and was, uh, was to try and, and shine a light uh, illuminating police work, I think, for the outside world. Um, being a detective, and especially uh, being a detective in charge of uh, running homicides, is is even more so, uh, I think, a strange place for, for a lot of people to, uh, to mm-hmm. actually see. Uh, people base their reality on that kind of stuff by watching television and the movies, and we all know that part of the fun of, of Hollywood is uh, to be able to take what's real and stretch it to unbelievable. And uh, so I, I think one of the things I felt like that I might be able to bring to the mystery writing community uh, that, that they weren't getting a lot of already was, was a real inside look. Mm-hmm. And so, so John Byron for me uh, really encapsulates uh, what it's like to be a, a police officer and still try to hold down a, a real life. Uh, I, I really based him, I think in, in constructing John, I, I really used a lot of my own experiences, a lot of experiences of the men and women that I worked with and trained under and supervised. So I tried to, to create as, more, as realistic a character, uh, both good and bad. Uh, John has his flaws, uh, as I could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's, um, it's interesting you bring all that up about, you know, trying to make this uh, as authentic as possible. That's, you know, one, obviously one of the reasons that I, I have folks like you come on and try to share your, your experiences and your tactics and strategies with aspiring authors. As a veteran cop, reading Beyond the Truth, um, there are parts of it that are, are admittedly very frustrating for me because I know uh, intrinsically what it feels like to be in a little bit of, of the detective's shoes when he's having to deal with you know people that he doesn't trust within the ranks, people on the outside throwing rocks at the house, uh, through the press, through the media, through the public, and trying to right. trying to balance all that. It's um, I think you've done a really fantastic job of making that feel authentic and for me, having never worked specifically as a homicide detective, um, I, I really feel a little bit of a small portion, I think, of the weight of that responsibility. Would you mind talking about that? Yeah, it, I think it really is. You don't, you know, it's funny, I've had a lot of time to, 
to sort of reflect and process uh, my time on the job since leaving, uh, which has now been, what, seven years? I'm not sure how that happened. Six and a half years. <laughs> well, <congrats. laughs> You've you you. passed the life Thank expectancy. You. Yeah. Right. I know. It feels like, exactly. Yeah. And I, I said I wanted to be as old as Yoda so that I could collect every possible pension check. So we'll see how that works out. Yeah. But, um, yeah. You know, I don't think at the time you're aware of it. I, I, I really think you know, your question, uh, as far as the weight of that mm-hmm. uh, goes, I think it's probably very similar to the way, uh, you know, when you work in the street as a street cop, you feel on your way to something that you know might be life altering uh, mm-hmm. and that you may not walk mm-hmm. away from. I think at the time you're so caught up in the, the adrenaline rush of it. And I think you're, you're, you know, let's face it, cops love to do that job. If we didn't, none of us would have been cops. Yep. Uh, and we and we certainly wouldn't have stuck with it. Uh, so I, I think it's really very similar to that. I think you don't think about it at the time. It's not until later on that you look back and you realize, you know, how much responsibility you carried and, and how hard it was to really ever shut down. Uh, one of the things that really led to me finally making the decision to retire, uh, I had just started my 28th year, was that uh, I realized, uh, actually, I made the fatal mistake of two, taking a two-week vacation. <laughs> and, yeah, I didn't get many of those on the job. Yeah. Generally, it was yeah. a week, and then you were back. And uh, and, my, and actually, my wife, for the first time, uh, I, I was feeling the stress. There's no question. I mean, you you physically realize when the job is starting to take a toll on you, mm-hmm. and uh, you know you're not working out enough, you're not eating right, and the stress just builds. Mm-hmm. And I um, I had never really taken a vacation since I you know since I took that job. I I spent my the times that we were away or on a beach or something I would spend returning emails or texts or phone calls or uh, trying to put out fires in my absence and uh, so that was the first time I really had unplugged and I basically told the people that worked for me look you know you're gonna have to fend for yourself until I get back (laughs) you know good luck hold the fort and uh, I will be back and uh, after you know the first week you really just sort of decompressing but that second week for me was uh, was an eye opener and I realized how much fun uh, pretending I was Jimmy Buffett, uh, you yeah. know, drinking and sunning and fishing and, and how much that was. And when I came back to work, it really, that, that first Monday took me about three hours before I realized I'd had enough. So it was really that simple for me, but yeah, looking back, I, I think it definitely was a, it was a fun job, but it was a high stress job. I mean, the politics and, and those types of things are constant. They never go away. No. Um, you, you fight the same fights over and over again, even on different cases and with different people. Um, uh, one of the things that, that ends up becoming almost a trope in, in these books is that the, the sergeant who's in charge of these murder cases and the, his boss is like his lieutenant, uh, LaRoyer in, in the case of my series, um, they're always at each other's throats almost. And it, and it becomes a trope, but the reality is, and, and like I try to tell people, John doesn't hate Marty LaRoyer, his lieutenant in this series. And I, I certainly didn't hate the lieutenants I worked for. But the nature of the job is different. And the lieutenant, really, his job is to try and placate his bosses and to try and preserve his place in the chain of command, hoping to get higher um, and to worry about whether or not we're going over budget. And, you know, all those types of things are really, once you start getting away mm-hmm. from the street, those are the things that they worry about. And really, as a detective sergeant, the one thing, really the only two things you had to worry about was trying to protect your people so that they could do their job uh, and then and solving the case. I mean, that was it. Those were the only two things we cared about. And um, 
a lot of the people that we worked for had different agendas. Uh, sometimes just by the, it's, it's the nature of the job that they would have that. Uh, a lot of times we would, we would argue and, and fight about, you know, whether or not there was going to be an arrest uh, eminent. And the last thing we cared about really investigating a murder case was an arrest. Uh, the, what you cared about was building a case that would stand up, you know, to the, through the long haul. And um, that's, that's not necessarily putting a bow on it as quick as possible. That's trying to do your job and make sure that you're thorough. So that, that resulted in a lot of stress. I, I think that's pretty common throughout police work. Yeah, you know, I think in certainly my own experience that that's a pretty fair summation of it. You know, I think a lot of cops start out, and, and they should, uh, pretty idealistic, pretty very motivated to go out and, and you know, change the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately, you know, that's that's certainly a big part of the recruiting video, right, <laughs> regardless of, of the department. Right. You know, having this massive impact on your community and, and the, the people around you, your neighbors and, 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 and service. But the, the reality really is uh, for me that cops, each individual cop is a very small cog in a very massive machine. And right. you know, when cops start out with that, that idealism, you know, that a few years in start becoming a little bit more jaded, a little cynical, a little doubting. And a lot of the sergeants are, you know, real worried about, you know, risk management and liability and, you know, vicarious liability and all those, those buzzwords they have to put in every conversation about policy procedure and, and do everything right. And the lieutenants, um, you know, are more concerned with like the business of law enforcement, which I think is probably for me, the most depressing aspect of it. I mean, you, you bring up uh, the budget issues, right? Well, like deciding which cases get submitted for DNA and right. which cases we spend money on for fingerprints and overtime right. budgets. And, you know, for the rookie cop, for me, you know, I assumed we had like this unlimited basket of money that just you know, <laughs> allowed us to work every case to the end until right. it was absolutely closed or unsolvable. And then we, then we got to go home. Right. 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 <laughs> in a perfect world, that's how that would be. Yeah. And it's funny, you, you mentioned the, the change in, in structure as you go up through the ranks. And uh, I was just thinking as you were talking about that, it, it's funny how fast that switch uh, actually gets tripped. Yes. Uh, for me, I remember, I can still remember being that cop on the street that wanted to go in every time we thought we had a burglar in a, in a building at night. You know, we, I wanted to be one of the ones that went in. And I didn't want to wait for a canine unit to get there. Or if we had a standoff, I didn't want the SWAT team to get called in. I thought, you know, we're, we're police officers. We can do this. Yes. And, um, and I always had to be held back. <laughs> and, and then I remember my first night when that happened, my guys were doing exactly the same thing. Like, we got to go in, we got to go get yep. this guy side. Yep. And I'm thinking, you know what? It, no, because if, if that happens and one of my guys get hurt, I got to yes. live with that. And so I'm like, you know what? Let's try to get a canine down here first. And I'm thinking, my God, who said that? Uh, yeah. But, you know, it's how fast it happens. All of a sudden mm-hmm. you realize you're responsible for somebody besides yourself on the street. And uh, it's almost a, a parental role. And I think uh, the good sergeants figure that out in a hurry. Yeah, and, and I think that's, you know, really the, for me, the the sergeants that I most enjoyed working for were more like, you know, an, uh, a protective older brother, maybe, maybe a, mm-hmm. not necessarily a dad, but, you know, or, or, or a parent. Um, but, you know, that they, uh, they, they let you run kind of to the end of the leash and maybe gave you a gentle tug sometimes, but, you know, f- you know right. they were there to to really make sure that you, you weren't taking too much risk because they had already seen what you've seen, you know? Exactly. Exactly. You know, there's, there is no teacher like negative experience. And um, yeah, as soon as you realize you're responsible for the lives of other people, I I think that 
that changes a whole lot of a whole lot of work product you know oh yeah product. yep now the as i'm reading through uh, beyond the truth this this book opens um with an officer involved shooting and i i don't um i i I have zero experience with Portland, Maine, other than, you know, what I've, what I've got read of your book so far and mm-hmm. knowing that, you know, s- sometimes you guys are identified as the other Portland, you know, or the better Portland, <laughs> you know, on your perspective, right? Um, we were the first Portland. I tried to tell you that. <laughs> there we, we go. We were the first Portland, right? Yeah. Capital P. Right. Um, the, uh, um, but, you know, for, uh, for me working out West, I, I thought as a cop coming out of the Academy, that, you know, if I could make it, you know, a whole career without getting involved in a shooting, that would be ideal. That'd be fantastic. If I could, you know, make it, you know, weeks or months without even having to pull my gun out, that'd be fantastic. Right. And I think I made it about three hours um, right. of a shift before, you know, a, a gun's out and a lethal threat is there. So officer involved yep. shootings are unfortunately just uh, far too common. And I, there's a, a myriad of causes for them, but this one, this book opens up with an officer involved shooting and, and some of the difficulties around that. Um, for me, it, I, I think Byron, uh, your character's done a, it, uh, you put him in a really tough position and I think you're doing a really good job with this of articulating the, the tightrope that you've got to walk as a police investigator investigating police um, or some portion of police conduct and trying to be totally objective and trying to do the right thing um, regardless of what that outcome means. And that's, that's a tough spot. It is. And I, and I think that's, you know, really that is what the job is now. And I, and I think a lot of too few people, I think, understand that. I I think there's a a narrative that's being spun that would lead you to believe there's, there's unlimited corruption and there's all kinds of stuff Mm -hmm. going on behind the scenes, especially if you watch television, my God, you know, there's a bad cop around every corner. Um, But I, I think the reality is that is another one of those struggles that you have. Um, the pro, you know, it's funny because, uh, you know, having done police shooting investigations as well mm-hmm. uh, and, and actually done, uh, I can't tell you how many background investigations for hires and stuff. Mm-hmm. The, the one problem with police work is, uh, or even when I was doing counterterrorism work, is that you can't unlearn the things that you discover. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's the problem when you're when you're in a job where it's all about the search for the truth. That yes. truth may not always be a convenient truth. And, you know, you're in a tough place because if, if something inappropriate was done, mm-hmm. uh, you're the person who's going to discover that and really have to ring the alarm. And um, that's, it's a tough place to be. But I think, unfortunately, a lot of people don't understand that there are a lot of men and women out there that do that every single day. And there, it's not an enviable position to be in, especially when things don't go the right way. Uh, but I think it's important because, um, you know, if, if we're not able to keep ourselves in check, um, I'm not sure, based on everything else I'm seeing, that, that you can trust anyone else to do it today because there are too many agendas. Yeah. I think it's really incumbent upon police officers to do exactly what the job they were sworn in to do. Uh, and that's always upholding the law and, and trying to uh, do the job to the best of your abilities and find the truth, whatever that happens to be. Yeah, you know, I, I think one of, one of my, first, um, my first mentors in cop work uh, put it very simply that we are, we're simply tasked with doing the right thing at the right time and for the right reasons. And, you know, I think uh, something my, my dad said growing up that principles are expensive things to own. And unfortunately, I like that. 
and like uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's rung true in my life time and again. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it really is. Um, unfortunately, as human beings, I don't think it's exclusive to cops. I think we just end up in, in more, uh, more positions that are a little bit dire than, than, than the average folks. But, you know, I think time and again, you, you get tested over the years about what, what your boundaries are and what your principles are and what you're willing to, to, to uphold and, and what you're willing to risk to be able to look at yourself in the mirror in the morning. And, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to see how the rest of this book ends and how, how Byron deals with all this. Um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a tough thing. And I, I really appreciate the, the authenticity and the integrity you bring into it. Thank you. I, I, you know, when I, when I started to write this book, it's funny because one of the first things I worried about is um, I've intentionally not, um, I, I don't want to get preachy with any of these books. Uh, the goal is to add realism and bring realism to the stories. Uh, but I, but I want to write stories that are fun and engaging and drag you in and uh, won't let you go really. And, sure. um, and, and make it more difficult for you to try and figure out exactly what did happen to give you a taste of what real life is. And in this particular book, I just, I had seen the same things on the news that everyone else had seen over the last several years. And I was feeling really discouraged for the officers that were still doing the job, I feel like, you know, I make the point that sometimes I feel like I left them behind by retiring. Yeah. And survivors. Got I, yeah, really. I guess that's what yeah. it is. Like my, like my crew just went back overseas for another tour and I stayed stateside. I think it's what yeah. it feels like. And so I just felt like, you know what, this, this kind of a story is a story that has to be told. And I didn't want to get preachy and, and I made a uh, concerted effort to not get to that point. And I feel like I accomplished that. Um, I knew that there were people that either wouldn't want to read a book like this or might mm-hmm. draw conclusions at the beginning of the book, assuming they knew what I was going to write. And I really went out of my way to turn that on its head. I wanted people to have an in-depth look at this through multiple perspectives, uh, through the, you know, from the perspective of the officer involved in the shooting, from the perspective of the officers that had to uh, investigate and follow up on that. Uh, and, and possibly, you know, prosecute or, or fire over that. And also from the uh, viewpoint of the family, uh, of the person who's actually killed by the police, uh, because I think that gets lost on, on people that we also have to deal and worry with about that. Uh, they're still human beings and there are still people that have lost, uh, you know, a son or a daughter or whatever it happens to be uh, because of the actions of the police. So, and I, and I wanted to show the impact that that has on the, on everybody involved. And uh, I, I felt like I gave that a really fair uh, treatment in this book while still keeping the idea of it being a murder mystery and, and uh, you know, the police investigation aspect of it. But I, I, I knew that people would try to draw conclusions, uh, which is what people do. I mean, you know, sure. it's human nature. Um, and I, I think by the time you finish this book, you'll be very surprised at how things go. Yeah, and on the the, the family note, um, that's something that I, I agree gets very lost or you know very distorted um, by a lot of fiction or, or news accounts or uh, infotainment accounts. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I had occasion to meet with an organization years ago uh, here in Arizona. I don't know if if they're national. I haven't followed up with them since. But it, it, here in Arizona, the group is called Parents of Murdered Children, and mm-hmm. It's a, an organization that is a support group, basically like a, a self-group therapy almost for folks, family members whose um, 
whose lives have been impacted by homicide and not exclusive to, to parents at all. But it was absolutely heart wrenching to hear their stories. Um, some of them that had, you know, fantastic investigations, um, really had a great relationship with the detective, with the investigators on the case, had a good outcome in terms of, of justice. Um, some that weren't happy with the way the investigation went, but, you know, things ultimately went in their favor as best they could. And then, of course, some folks that absolutely despised everything law enforcement because of the actions or the perceived actions of, of uh, one or, or a couple cops. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was probably the, the first time that I really internalized the forever impact that our actions as cops have with the relationship with the public and, and the way that they perceive all of us is this, you know, homogenous, um, one size fits all entity that, you know, because of that one guy, the police are now all assholes. Right. Um, right. And, you know, that's, I think, especially with homicide investigations where emotions are so high and people are so desperate and so, um, you know, truly experiencing the worst days of their lives that really has the greatest impact and folks in, in your role, uh, in real life have the greatest potential to, to ensure we still have a good, good relationship with the community at the other end of that. Yeah, it really does. And it, and it's funny, I, there is so much work that goes into that. I, in these books, one of the things that I, I tend to do and not necessarily on purpose, but only because I could write another book about it would be, um, <laughs> The, you know the, the right, right. The the role of like the victim advocates, yes. um, and how closely they work with the detectives, um, and how how much work and how much emotional work it is to try and maintain uh, and build a relationship with the survivors of any of these cases, uh, to to basically help and guide them through the process, uh, through the court, the, how daunting the court procedures are, uh, the negative press that will surround things. Um, you know, it's amazing, really. Uh, we all get, even as a, you know, as an ex-police officer now, I see, you know, I get to see the news and I, I still have it that I, I'm able to look at it through that, uh, that gl- those, those glasses that I used to wear. I still get that. Um, but I also now, because I've, I've distanced myself from the job and I'm not doing it, I, I probably interpret it differently than I would if I was still working the streets. But I think your average person still doesn't see that there are actually human beings behind these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, the stories lately seem to take on a life of their own, and they're all about, uh, you know, politics gets woven into it. There's an agenda woven into it. Um, you hear people say things um, based on their own personal anguish or their own personal bias. And the, you're right. These are very emotional cases, and they're they're there's cases whereby people will say and do a lot of things they would not normally do. And I think a lot of that is grief. A lot of that is wondering how the, the wrong that, that's perceived or otherwise will be righted. Um, it's just, it's really a slippery slope. And, and the one thing that police officers can offer really uh, is an attempt at justice. And that's, you know, through our legal system, that's, that's not uh you know, it, it won't it won't ever bring back the, the person that's lost, uh, regardless of whether or not it was the police or someone else that took them. Um, it won't ever ease the pain, uh, especially in this book where you know the the person who is killed is a as a, a high school student. It's not mm-hmm. going to reduce the pain for the parents. Um, but the truth is is really the one thing that you try to offer, the one thing you try and discover and expose and and take out into the daylight uh, for the for the people that are still. 
surviving members or relatives of the victim. Uh, and that's really the best you can do as a police officer. I don't think it ever goes further than that. Um, and, and that's really what homicide investigation is. And then you, you put it in the courts, um, uh, ball court, and, uh, and, you, and you see where it goes from there. Uh, murder in, in real life doesn't tend to have a whole lot in common with how those crimes are investigated and, and fictionalized. I, I would say with a heavy asterisk so far, though, that you're, you're hitting the nail on the head on this one um, beyond the truth. But thank how you. do you uh, – no, thank you. <laughs> how, how, do you how do you balance the, the authenticity um, of writing a, a competent investigation without – allowing it to become a PhD in, in, in murder or crime. <laughs> right. And well, that's the, that's the trick. Yeah, that's the trick. Um, you know, I think you, as an investigator, it's hard for me to try and separate that stuff out because I want to add reality to these stories, mm-hmm. but I don't want to bore the reader. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I was telling somebody the other night at a panel that I was on, um, that I, I hate the term, um, Police procedural. I, I hate that. <laughs> like, yes. If you could title a genre anything else, that would be great because it sounds like it comes with a textbook uh, and we're going to have a test on it and a big paper yeah. at the end of the semester, you know. Um, uh, but I think it's important, like I say, it, it's, it gives some structure to the story. Um, and I like that. And I like the fact that it, it allows the reader to get more of a glimpse. I mean, I think people are better informed now probably than they used to be, even though a lot of what you see on television and, and the movies is really poorly done as far as yes. its comparison to reality. Mm-hmm. Um, there is still a lot of things that, that people now are exposed to that they never were in the past. And I think that that's, says something about how many different mystery shows or, or movies that have been made, which is great. But I still think it's important to try and get enough of that in there to build reality into the, to the story that's being told. But I don't need to go overboard. Um, you know, your average reader doesn't want to wait a year for those DNA results no. to come back no. uh, because there's a pecking order by the departments that are that are actually tasked with getting those results. And and if your department happens to be low on the list, you might wait a year. Um, that would be a long book and no one would want to read it. Yeah. So you have to take some liberties. Um, but I, th- I think, like I say, I think you can weave enough. I've tried to weave enough detail in there to, to take you along for the ride. So you feel like you're working this case with John or Diane Joyner or, mm-hmm. or Mike Nugent or uh, Mel Stevens. And I, and I want you to feel like you're part of the team and that you understand what has to be done and what they're waiting for and, and what it's like to be lied to by witnesses. Uh, but I don't need to beat that to death. Um, I, I feel like if I give you enough of that, it's that balancing act where I, I go from, you know, having the story be suspenseful and, and build up to a climax and, uh, intersperse that with real details and real investigative procedure, um, that that will be enough for the reader. Now, when working and writing about the first and original Portland, uh, how, how do you go about writing fiction set in the place where you did live and work and while ensuring that none of the local thugs or crime victims see too much of themselves in your work? Um, you know, I, I've really kind of made a a pointed effort of that, especially when it comes to crime victims. Um, people ask a lot. I get that question uh, when I go to uh, do these talks a lot of times about whether or not I have written uh, these, that any of these books are based on real cases. And 
I decided early on, um, I, first of all, let me give you the caveat of never say never because people say, will you, will, will you ever write a true crime book? Yeah. But I said, you know, I feel like after almost three decades, I've had enough true crime and there's a, there's a catharsis in writing, you know, fictional mystery, murder mystery novels where the crime gets solved, uh, justice is served, uh, you know, and, and I feel like true crime for me is not really something I want to get into mm-hmm. um, for the reasons of, that I just stated, but also because I think the last thing I would want to do would be to cause uh, family members or, or whatever of, of a victim of a real case uh, any additional pain. And I feel like not that not that true crime necessarily does that, but unless there was a reason for me to ever actually write a true crime book, um, I, I don't think it's something I'd want to get into. I feel like uh, you know, fiction is safer. So I, the stories that I write are made up. Uh, this, the, the, the things that I put in there and the scenes sometimes are based on uh, real things that I experienced or real things that officers I worked with experienced. But there, I, I try to keep a, a com- conscious thought uh, that, that I don't want to, to do anything that's going to cause harm to anybody because I've written fiction. I guess what I don't want to do is sensationalize yeah. something that actually did happen. Certainly. So, now with um, with you having uh, having given interviews now on your writing for for a number of years and having run interviews for mm-hmm. decades, mm-hmm. what's one thing that you always wished someone would have asked you in one of these interviews? Oh, <laughs> um, do my job for me. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, you know, I I think everybody. I think there's a romantic notion, um, and and I'll be honest, I I have had it, and I guess I still have it myself about writing and about uh, writing uh, this kind of stuff specifically. Uh, obviously, the the people that read the murder mystery genre really get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I would say it's funny. One of the pieces of advice I got when I started out early on, before I ever got published, while I was busy banging my head against the wall uh, trying to write my drawer novel. Uh, the two and a half year drawer novel, by the way. Yeah. Um, my my mentor, Kate Flora, uh, who's a, an accomplished writer herself, uh, she said to me, be careful what you wish for. And what she was telling me was that my dream of becoming a published novelist would actually happen. It wasn't a question of if, it was a question of when. And I needed to really realize that there was a lot more work <laughs> once I'd achieved my goal. Yes. Um, and I think that's one of the things that people don't recognize. Um, I love writing. I mean, that's, that's not an issue. That, I had a love for writing before I ever got into police work. Um, I think the thing that people don't recognize, you know, that, that would say, oh, my God, I'd love to run, write novels, is that they don't realize to do this, and especially in my case, having come from law enforcement, how much time you spend in your own head mm-hmm. doing this. Um, the third book, as the one that you're reading now, Beyond the Truth in this series, uh, as you might have already seen uh, through some of the passages you've read, there's a lot of emotion in, in this book. Yes. Um, it, it, really, it really drained, I think, on me as a person to write that book. Um, and I don't, I don't say that like the other two books were just topical and no big deal. But I think I really, I, tur- I turned the emotion uh, meter way up to do the third book. And that really required me to delve back into a lot of dark places um, that I had inhabited during my career. And that was all to great effect. I mean, I think it definitely, it shows in the book and I think it helps the story be told in a more realistic way, mm-hmm. but it also means that 
that I did just that. I actually walked around and poked into some areas that I probably didn't think I'd ever poke into again. And so there's, there's a, I don't want to say PTSD component to it, but you're definitely digging up old ghosts, I think, to write this series. And I, I don't believe I ever thought that that would be something that would be part of doing this. I, I just could see myself sitting down and, you know, with my new, uh, you know, 21st century version of a typewriter and banging happily away while whistling a tune. And I, I just, I guess I didn't realize really the mental aspect and, and how much work goes into this and how you spend your entire day with, with the story either in the forefront or running in the back of your, back of the, uh, of your head. You know, really, you kind of spend all your day with that running all the time because you're you're working out plot points and you're thinking about what characters would do. Um, it's really just not something you turn on or off. I think once you turn it on, it stays on. And uh, it's just it's just something that's hard to describe to somebody that doesn't write. Yeah, you know, writing is simple. You just sit down at a typewriter and bleed, right? Right, right. Yeah, that's a great, that is an excellent, that's a great quote. I saw that again the other day. It's true. It's absolutely yeah. true. I think the things that we write that people really get engrossed in and really fall in love with, I think sometimes end up becoming the things that are the most painful for the writer to write because you're getting, you're delving into personal things um, that that wouldn't necessarily be something you'd normally put down on paper. Yeah, and uh, Brad Taylor and I were talked about that came up in our, our interview last month about the uh, the difficulty in in writing those scenes that you you maybe don't necessarily want to write even or that it becomes critical to the story and you end up you know like you said revisiting some place of your past that had been long buried um, right once is taped over you know the yeah. properly pressurized and you know um, having to go unpack that. Um, you know, and expose it, you know, to the, to the world for, for review and criticism. And it's a very surprisingly personal thing that, you know, they don't necessarily tell you in that particular recruiting video either, you know? Right. Um, no, that's true. That's, and that's a good way of saying, it. I mean, I guess that's another point is that you're, you're pulling your heart out and throwing it on the table for somebody to criticize. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's, that's something, and that's every writer, I, you know, mm-hmm. obviously I'm, I'm referring specifically to what I'm writing here, but that's every writer. I think the more honest the, the author is in, in writing their novels uh, and the more they put some of their own experiences and feelings in to the work, I think the greater connection you'll have to the readers, but you're also opening yourself up to that and making yourself vulnerable. So that's, that's sort of a double-edged sword. Yeah, you definitely got to stay out of the comments section at that point. You know, just, <laughs> just let true. it ride. Whatever right? you did, let it ride. Yeah, no, it's um, true. Now, who, uh, getting a, a, out of respect for your time, Bruce, I'll start wrapping this up because I, I, I could carry this on for a while. Um, <laughs> no worries. Wh- who uh, who are your favorite fictional investigators in, in books, TV, and film? Who do you, uh, I've do gotta, you read for fun? I got to say uh, Dave Robichaud. Uh, at the moment is is my hands down favorite at the at this moment uh, I've, mm-hmm. I absolutely love James Lee Burke's work um, I'm still bummed out that I've I have not got to meet him um, he really is one of my literary heroes at the moment and uh, I just love the writing I, I love the inner dialogue uh, that he has I love the relationships he has and some of the quirky characters that Dave has to deal with uh, and New Orleans and the whole the whole thing down there to me is just uh, it's almost a romantic place the way yeah, it's written, the way that, that James Lee Burke writes it. I, I always tell people if you're, 
if you're looking for something in, in some kind of a framework or some kind of a comparison to make for, for what is good crime writing, I said, if you, if you read James Lee Burke, the thing that I like the best about what he does is he takes these dark and gritty stories and really evil people that Dave Robichaud has to contend with all the time, or even Dave's, Dave's own inner demons. And somehow he magically is able to, to weave that together in a story that occasionally rises to the level of prose. I mean, he's almost writing poetry when he's describing New Orleans and the surrounding area. And I, I find that fascinating that, that he can do that. Um, so to me, that right now would probably be my favorite of all of them. But I, I mean, I, you know, I read all that stuff. I love the Spencer series. I love the Jesse Stone series. Um, you know, there's just so many out there that are really good. Um, C.J. Box uh, uh, writes great characters. Uh, William Kent Kruger. Uh, there's just so many of them. Uh, and even in Maine, Paul Dwarren does the Mike Bowditch uh, Game Warden series, which I really love. Um, there's, a, there's a million of them. So, no, keeping that in, that in mind, um, God forbid it should happen, Bruce, but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, <laughs> would you rather have John Byron or Robichaux working the case? <laughs> Um, I gotta have John Byron because unless, <laughs> unless I'm, unless I'm murdered down in New Orleans, um, you know, John knows this area. So I, I think yeah. I'd have John on the case. He's, he's definitely like a, a junkyard dog. He bites on and he doesn't let go. So it's gotta be John Byron. All right. Fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm glad maybe I could have, maybe I could have James Lee Burke write the book though. Cause I'm dead at that point. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah you're going to need some help. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, that sounds fantastic. I, gre I greatly appreciate you spending time with us and coming out. Um, My pleasure. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyright broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been retired detective sergeant and best-selling author Bruce Coffin. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.